chapter 7, starting with verse 24, going through chapter 8, verse 10. And uh, if you are reading from a Pew Bible, it's on page 791. Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered into a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And, he, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And, and his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Thank you, Ken. By the way, if you would like, there are daily breads available in the lobby on the table, and you can use those and be fed from the Word of God, our daily bread. We'll be in Mark chapter 7 and 8, as we just heard read. Thank you, Ken. Let's pray. Oh God, you who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made the light shine in our hearts 
so that we can know the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh God, may the reality of your glory be overwhelming to us as we look upon the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ and help our response to be one of awe and appreciation and humility before you as our Messiah. Use these minutes we have in your word to remove us from the distractions that so much distress us. May there be a living hope within our hearts that you give because the gospel of Jesus Christ and your eternal purposes that are filled, fulfilled. Your kingdom that is come in Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I noticed a progression of thought as we were reading this passage together, as Ken has read it together. And uh, it's continuing up to a point just a little bit later on in chapter 8. And we'll deal with the last portion of chapter 8 here in just a few weeks but there's a progression here that I think is very beneficial. And in the study of Mark, it's the discovery of the truth of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that's a very important word, the Messiah. And for Peter, that was a, there was a turning point in his life when he realized that Jesus was the Messiah. And for all of us, like Peter, to become followers of Jesus because he is the Messiah. Would you look at verse 29 in Mark chapter 8? Verse 29. Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. This anointed, the one that the Old Testament speaks of, this Messiah, the one that God promised would come to take away the sins of the world, this Lamb of God, this Messiah. Are we convinced of that? That's an incredibly important conviction that Peter came to, that you are the Christ, that we must come to as well. All of the Old Testament fulfillment in this person that was prophesied, that was the one that God said would come to do for us that no one, something that no one else could do, this Messiah, this anointed one, this Lamb of God, this Jesus Christ, this one that would crush the serpent's head, this one is what it's all about. And when we begin to see this conviction of the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, all of life begins to make sense around this one conviction. He is the Christ. If He is the Christ, all of history makes sense. And it all comes together. If we don't have this, life is just a maze. It's confusion. It's what in the world is going on. But God has a plan, and it's being fulfilled, and it's in this one, the Christ Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember, Christ is developing His disciples to the place where when He returns to glory, they will be effective in their witness and their ministry here on earth in His kingdom. So here's the question that we must ask ourselves. What does it take for us to be convinced, like Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah? 
He's worthy of our allegiance. He's worthy of our lives. What will it take for us to get there? I believe Jesus was preparing them for this conviction that Paul, that Peter stated, you are the Christ. In our text, Mark 7, verse 24, through Mark chapter 8, verse 9, that then continues on to Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah. It's following the controversy of the Pharisees over their heart issues, and Pastor Jordan addressed that last week. Then Jesus goes on a long trip to the north and to the west, up into what we know of as Lebanon, a place called Tyre. You see that in verse 24 of chapter 7. And then he moves on up a little bit further north to Sidon, verse 31. And we're not exactly sure why he's there. We do know that his disciples, the twelve, are with him. And we know that he was trying to get away from the crowds that were, I mean, it was heating up. I mean, it was, they were, they were trying to push him into his kingdom role as, as the conquering king. But Jesus had some more work to be done with training of the twelve so that they would be able to be faithful in their calling, just like you and I are to be faithful in our calling right now. And so there was a time period of several weeks, maybe a couple of months, that Jesus was out of the Galilee region. He was not down in Jerusalem where we've seen him and we will see him later. But now he's up north, and there's a reason for that. Here... He's among Gentiles. Gentiles. He's doing phenomenal works there. He's casting out the demon. That's verses 24 through 30. He's healing a deaf man who can't even speak. Verses 31 through 37. And he feeds the hungry again. The 4,000. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Here's what we need to come to on this. Jesus is doing this, right? Only God can cast out demons. Only God can give hearing. Only God can feed the multitudes. Jesus is God. And that's what they were realizing as Jesus was doing these things, as he's teaching them along the way in private, he's emphasizing to them, I need you to know who I am. This Messiah, this Jesus is God. Now, it's a very unique time in his ministry. He's not teaching the crowds. He's not evangelizing. But he's showing them, all of these Gentiles and the disciples, he is God. And if he is God, that changes everything. All of history revolves around this promise that God was fulfilling in his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the key to the whole context of this passage in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 as we get up to Peter's confession. Jesus is with Gentiles, people like you and me. I love that. Keep that in mind. Now, there are three, three questions that I think are very helpful in examining this, these, each one of these events. This casting out of the demon, this healing of the deaf man, and the feeding of the 4,000. Three questions we'll ask. Who is Christ? What does Christ do? And... If he's doing that, if he is that, what does Christ want? So as we're studying this, we're looking not just, oh, here's a story. We're asking these questions. Who is this one? Is this the Christ? What is he doing? And 
what does he want from me if that's who he is and that's what he's doing? In order to become aware of God in our daily lives, I think it's important that we be asking those questions. And I'd like to illustrate as we work through this passage how those questions being answered can really give this passage purpose and meaning and application. What do we do with this? So first, this first event, this development, we read that Jesus came to Tyre and Sidon. There he meets a Canaanite woman, a, a Syrophoenician woman. She's, she's in the part of the, the world that is ruled by Syria at that time, and it goes all the way down into Phoenicia. Uh, it was a Gentile region, as I mentioned, with a long history of antagonism toward the people of God, the Israelites. And for context, this area had been the home of Jezebel. Remember that name? Yeah. Not somebody you want to hold up as a godly testimony, anything but that. Uh, she promoted her pagan prophets. Paganism, everything you can understand about wickedness in our world right now was wrapped up in that religion of paganism and all of those practices. We read about that in 1 Kings 16. These people had wealth beyond imagination. I mean, they, were, they, had, they had commerce coming and going both up and down the coast and from the sea. Uh, they had resources, natural resources, much in the way of, of, of cedars, of, of huge trees and so forth. So they were very wealthy, but they were very cruel as a people. We read of that in, Ex, in Ezekiel chapter 26 and also in, in Zechariah chapter 9. Josephus, the historian for the people of, of the Jews, Josephus said that the people of Tyre, this region where Jesus went to be away, they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. So Jesus is going to a people that are their enemies. That's important to keep in this context and understanding how we can understand the application ourselves. So this was the land of, of Canaan, the Philistines. And this woman of Canaanite descent, Syrophoenician woman, had a desperate problem. And I just stopped there for a second. You might put this in your notes as well. This is something to hang on to, a takeaway. People have problems. We get to rushing along so much with our lives and our schedules and our ideas and our priorities that we, stop, that we, we miss that. People have problems, desperate problems. They don't know what to do about them. And yet we're so caught up with ourselves and our own agendas that we don't see people hurting. They have problems. They're right there in front of us. These other 12, they were so, they weren't, we don't know what their thinking was, but we don't see any indication that they noticed that this woman in front of Jesus had a problem. It was an unspeakable problem. People have problems. I think we need to stop and think about that and be aware of that to give us a little bit more of compassion and of some having compassion, making a difference, understanding why are they acting that way? Why are they doing that? Why do they say that? Well, people have problems. There's a whole lot going on in life that just hurts, that we can't put into words. But if we take the time to listen and learn 
and be there, maybe they can work through it. I don't know what problems you're dealing with. I should, I should know. And as your pastor, that needs to be my priority. And a way you can pray for me is, Lord, help our pastor not be so busy that he doesn't take time to listen to people's problems and be there. The whole church should be saying amen to that. People are hurting. Jesus caught that. Her daughter was possessed by a demon. Wow. And here she's begging Jesus to cast this demon out of her. There are no other answers, and there really are not, for that kind of a problem. How do we handle this? Are demons real? Now, here in our American culture, they're much more deceptive. They use a lot of things to hide themselves in our culture. We don't see it nearly like other places in the world. You go to other places in the world, you see it very clearly. But here, there's so much materialism, so much rampant uh, pride and idolatry of self. They don't need to expose themselves. But here, it was very obvious. This little girl was controlled by a demon. And I don't understand everything about that. I don't want to understand everything about that. I want to be wise concerning that which is good, uninformed concerning that which is evil, right? But the truth is, this is a problem. It's a problem in our day. People are hurting. And sometimes there are, this kind of, there, there, there are these kinds of issues. So what do we do with that? I put in your notes uh, a website link for just a short little paragraph article, how can demonic strongholds be overcome? Whatever that means. I don't know all of that. But a great resource that normally when I come across this website and I see how they're handling issues, I, I have some confidence toward how they're handling things. Gotquestions.com. And what I want to draw your attention to is the last line there. And I don't think you can read it. It's pretty small. Well, well, thank you. Our, our AV guy was able to make it a little bit larger so you can see it here. Here's a quotation. No demonic stronghold can withstand praying Christians. That's number one. Wearing the full armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, Right? And we're praying always with all prayer and supplication. No demonic stronghold can withstand praying Christians wearing the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, this whole armor of God, everything that God is working within us. No demonic stronghold can withstand praying Christians wearing the full armor of God, battling with the Word of God. By the way, if you're going to take some time to read a good book this year, go back and read Pilgrim's Progress, and you'll find that over and over again, Pilgrim, on his journey, had to go back to his scroll. And it's the Word of God that gets you through the hard times. And if, as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God and prayer, and you have on the full armor of God, nothing can withstand that. There are no strongholds that can withstand that. And now over 40 years of ministry, looking back, I can see that truth again and again. Hang on to that quotation. No demonic stronghold can withstand praying Christians wearing the full armor of God, battling with the Word of God, 
and empowered by His Holy Spirit. That's the truth. So I don't know what problems you're working through right now. Maybe we can talk about that. But know this. Prayer, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and going in the power of God with His armor, God is able to conquer. Where that takes you in God's will, God knows that God is able. Amen? So Jesus then says a very strange thing to her. Look at verse 27. So this woman who comes just begging him, please deliver my daughter from this demon. Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And I'm reading that and I'm going, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Isn't that rude? He's implying that she's a dog. Well, when you come to difficult passages in the Bible, what do you do? You dig deeper. You look further. You study it out. There's always, I can say that, there's always an answer. If you keep, and it's a good, sufficient answer if you keep on digging. So often people just say, oh, the Bible has all these con- contradictions or it's, it's, it doesn't fit culturally or whatever. But you keep on digging. You, you do see that the Word of God is quick and powerful and it fits every situation. And this one is one you need to dig a little deeper on. Why did Jesus say, throw it to the dogs? Is he implying that she's no better than a dog? It's really important to understand the culture and how Jews treated people, which was not with kindness. And Jesus was one of them. He understood that culture. And the Jewish people looked on these people as the scum of the earth. And they called them dogs, Gentile dogs. Their assumption was no one but the Jews, that no one but the Jews deserved God's promise of life. They were the chosen people, and they are. Yet here, Jesus does something within their language that they all catch that we don't quite see because it doesn't come out in our translation. The language here is Greek, and there were two different words for dog. Kuron was the kind of dog that roamed the streets, scavenging, was the scum of the earth, This is the kind of dog that's out there attacking people. Kunarion is the word for a pet. It means the little puppy. In fact, some translations you'll see, it's the little dog. It's the little puppy. We have a little dog, little puppy. And he thinks he owns, that that, that little girl dog, excuse me, she, thinks she owns our house because she's so loved. Now, we have some rules. Our dog, Maisie, may not eat at our table. Our dog has to sit on the mat while we're eating. And she's not supposed to have, she's not supposed to have food scraps. Sometimes that happens. But she can have the crumbs that hit the floor. It's for her good, we say, because she's supposed to have just the dog food that's healthy for her, right? We want to keep her healthy. But we love to sneak her snacks. That dog is loved. 
That's the word that Jesus is using here. Even the dogs, the little puppies, are cared for. And Jesus is using this word, kunarion, the little cherished puppy at the foot of the table that you gladly feed because you love that little puppy. And here Jesus is opening the door to draw out her faith in the midst of this cultural tension where the culture is saying, oh, there's nothing better than this, those, those scum-of-the-earth dogs. In essence, she is realizing, I'm not one of the little children around the table, but I do know you care for me. And she requests Jesus' help. She calls him Lord. In fact, as we read the same account in Matthew, she calls him the son of David, which is referring to the Messiah. This one that the whole Bible, all of history, all of prophecy is all about. And when you understand who this Messiah is, this Jesus, it clicks. And so she's coming to him knowing who she's speaking to. Now, this is really important. Her faith was informed. I don't know how she got the word, but somebody got her the word. Isn't that good? She was very informed, and we can know that God's word does not go forth void. God will use that in the hearts of people that are drawn to him, and their hearts are responsive. Here's how her faith was informed. She knew who he was, the son of David, the Messiah. Again, we don't know how, but she knew. Number two, she knew that the children of Israel were the people of God. They were part of God's story to get the word of God to everyone else. She knew who the children of Israel were. Number three, she knew who she was. Unworthy. Here's a note. Jesus refers to Israel as the technon, the immature biological children. This is another key point of an interpretation in getting this story to make sense. The technon, the biological children. The woman uses a different word for child. She uses the word pedion, which is more inclusive. It's the idea of all the little kids in the household, including the servant's children. So Jesus uses the term, the children that belong to God's family. She's using the word children who are there in the household. That change in terminology indicates this woman understands the mercies of God for all people. And if you read your Old Testament, you know that the promise was made to all nations, and it was repeated, and God would get His good news to all people. The mercies of God, this loyal love of God that isn't deserved, but it's there for us. And here, her faith was a humble and persistent faith that showed up in her response to this Jesus who says, feed the children first and then the puppy without it being an offense to her. And she was not offended. I want to make a cultural application right now using this passage, Mark chapter 7. We can learn something from this Canaanite woman. The solution to the racism issues of our day that we all know about are found in her. 
humility and faith in Christ as God. No other answers are going to work. Humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord and recognizing, Jesus Christ, you love me. I'm coming in faith to you. That will be the answer to our cultural issues. No other answer will work. Humility and faith in Christ as God. And the Bible reveals the mercies of God that are new every morning. Jesus then travels back to this region of Decapolis. Again, it's, it's kind of a horseshoe-shaped journey. He goes 20 miles north and east, and then, excuse me, north and west. And then he comes back around to the east and then back down south to this area that's called the Decapolis. Ten cities that were not of Jewish uh, population. The, the Decapolis is what they called it. From Tyre, he's traveling over 20 miles north to Sidon and then southeast and further south through Caesarea Philippi to this Decapolis on, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And this horseshoe-shaped journey, probably about 120 miles or so, uh, takes him to this place right along the, the coast of, of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a place, again, of Jew, uh, not of Jewish descent, of Gentiles. And there Jesus heals a deaf man. And he, and he, puts, he puts his finger in his ears. And he spits on his hand and he touches the man's tongue. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be very uncomfortable with anybody doing that. that I mean, I, I hate the wet woolly thing. You remember that? Oh, oh. Anybody ever remember those wet woolies? Don't ever do that, please. All right. But then Jesus also take some of his own saliva, and in that culture, this man was not offended. In fact, he was, he was thrilled, and, and Jesus then spoke one word, Ephetha, which means open up, and just with speaking a word, this is what happens. This man who could not hear and whose speech was so garbled you could not understand it, he began to speak with, with passion, and what he says, I love this, wouldn't it be great to hear these first words? He does all things well. That's what Jesus does. He does all things well. And He does. It's all beautiful in His time. He does all things well. And with one word, Jesus is able to do this. That's the kind of power that this creative God, in the beginning, God created and He spoke and it happened. Day after day, those seven days, six days of creation. If God can speak and it happened, this is another evidence that Jesus is God. He spoke and it happened. It's amazing. And this man was enabled to do something that he was not able to do before. Speak and testify of the goodness of God. That's power. God totally transformed this man in one word. God can do that. Then in the same region, in the same region, with the Gentiles, this whole section is with the Gentiles. There's one more that we'll look at the next time. In the same region with the Gentiles, Jesus does another phenomenal miracle. He feeds the 4,000. We just read of that. 
And the question is, why? Why, right after he's feeding the 5,000, do we come back and read of these feeding of the 4,000? Now, there are enough differences in the accounts to accurately assess that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 are entirely different events. But why the two? Well, can I draw your attention to the first phrase in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Ephesians. Where did I get to Ephesians? Mark chapter 8, verse 1. You see it there? In those days. He's still with the Gentiles. He's still with the people that are not part of the Jewish tribes. In those days, in Decapolis, a Gentile region, he, he, he feeds 4,000 in a very similar way to the feeding of the 5,000. This is just an assessment. It doesn't say this, but I think it's an application we can get as to why it was going this way because soon right after when the church is established, at first it went to the, the Jewish people in that region, and then by chapter 8, chapter 9, it's going on to the Gentiles with the ministry of Paul. So this is an anticipation of, of that. The feeding of the 5,000 was a ministry to the Jews first. The feeding of the 4,000 extends it to the Gentiles as well. And I'm so thankful for that, that Jesus is the bread of life, both for the Jew and for the Greek. So now this is what we want to focus on for what we do with this. If Jesus is who the Scriptures reveal, He is God, and he does what he says, it says he did. And he did do all these things. Delivering this girl from the demon. Giving this man his ears and his mouth. Feeding the 4,000. Then what should be our response? You have a chart there in your bulletin to follow along if you want to fill in these blanks with this. I like to, I, I'm a chart person. I like to be able to put things in a chart and then I can just have it in order. In Mark chapter 7, verses 24, this, this story of this child that was delivered from the demon, who is Jesus? He reveals he is God, the Messiah, the miracle-working God. In Mark 7, verse 31 through 37, he is God, the miracle-working God, when he gives this man his ears and his ability to speak. In Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. Again, he's revealing he is God, and he's able to do that that nobody else could do. He can just create this food just like that, and 4,000 people be fed with leftovers. So what does he do? Well, with this miracle of the delivery of this little girl from this demon, he's showing that he can deliver. In the miracle about the man receiving his ability to hear, he's enabling this man. He's giving him the ability to do something he cannot do on his own. That's grace. God enabling you with something you cannot accomplish yourself. That's the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. This is something where God does for us and he says be opened and it happens god can do that for you and this last miracle the feeding of the four thousand god provides he provides so god delivers god enables god provides now what do we do with this what does jesus want so the last column what does jesus want 
Jesus wants us to humble ourselves before him. This woman, knowing the scriptures, knowing this is God, coming with her problem, she humbles herself and says, surely a child can have some crumbs. This man who is deaf that receives his ability to hear and to speak, God enabled this man, and he was astonished by God. We should be astonished by God and his grace to us, that he would enable us to hear and to, to speak. And to, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, where we can say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. That's the grace of God enabling us to that. None of us are able. He gives us that, just like this man. We should be astonished at this amazing grace, how sweet this sounds. And third, we should be reminded and know that he cares. He's a compassionate God. He provides, and they were moved by his compassion. He's a compassionate God. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He cares for you, casting all your care on him, knowing that he cares for you. There's one more event that we'll come to next time as we look at this conviction that Peter has about this Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. But the thing that prepares us to understand our commitment and our loyalty to this Christ as the main reality of life, being aware of Christ, of who He is. He is God in the flesh. He is holy. He is powerful and he's compassionate, holy as in of a whole different sort than us. Yet we can come to him in humility. He is powerful and he enables us to handle what is put before us, whatever the issues, whatever the problems, whatever the limitations. His grace is sufficient and he is compassionate. You're not left out on your own. You have a God who cares, who is always there. Remember this. Right here, right now, God is with us. When Jesus walked this earth, the disciples became very convinced of who he was. They were in God's presence. They walked with Jesus each and every day. And the point of the Gospel of Mark is for us to discover this truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, he is God, he is all-powerful, and he does care for us. And when we know that, just like Peter, we'll come to the same conviction. He is the Christ, the Messiah. All of life revolves around this revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All of history revolves around Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And because He came, we can have hope for eternal life, assurance, not just a maybe so, but I know so, reality that Jesus keeps His promises. He that believes on me, though He die yet shall he live. And we can make the same declaration that Peter has. You are the Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. You are the Christ, the Son of God. An awareness of God, a declaration about Jesus, which leads us to a repudiation of self.
It's not about me. It's all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. Let's pray. We need God's deliverance. We need God's grace. We need God's provision. Jesus Christ is all of that. And His provision of the gospel gives us that. And the preaching of God's word is to be used, not just heard. Right now, in a quiet moment, before we sing again, I'd like you to ask yourself, what is it that God wants me to take from Matthew, Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8 to be convinced of Jesus Christ, the Messiah?